ahead and make your way over to the psalm, Psalm 19 this morning. Uh, and as you're doing so, anyone know what the shortest of the psalms is? You can just shout it out if you know. Nobody? Yeah, 117, you're right. Uh, 117 is just two verses long, very short. <clears throat> At some point, one of us will preach that before we get through them all. And that'll be quite a feat. Maybe we'll give that to Jeremy. We'll give it to Zach, actually. <laughs> um, anyway, so at the other extreme of that is, is our psalm today, Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is 176 verses long. And those 176 verses are actually organized in a very interesting way. There's 22 stanzas, 22 of them, because uh, in, in each of those, eight, eight verses per stanza, and 22 of those, and in each of those because... Um, each stanza begins with the same in the Hebrew, the Hebrew letter. And you get 22 of them because there's 22 Hebrew letters as opposed to, what do we have, 26 in English? <clears throat> anyway, uh, the whole psalm is this, this uh, what do you call it, acrostic Hebrew alphabet is what's going on here. Now, uh, we've made it our practice that every single summer we are going through two of these stanzas covering two of those Hebrew letters, if you will. Uh, and, and we're doing it you know, this way, <clears throat> not because Psalm 119th is just too long, it would be a long sermon, but we're doing it this way because 119, the 119th Psalm is just so good for our souls. It, it stirs our affections for God's Word. It draws us back again and again and again to this, this freshwater well of the Scriptures that we need in our life. It, it reminds us that we need to drink deeply um, and often from the Word of God. And so every single summer we love coming back to Psalm 119. And this year <clears throat> we are looking at the stanzas for the 15th and the 16th letters in the Hebrews alphabet, uh, Samach and Ayan. Uh, you can see what they look like in your bulletin there. Uh, Samach looks like uh, the head of a stick figure with cool wavy hair on him. Uh, and Ayan looks like a stylized letter Y there. Uh, so uh, we're going to begin then in verse 113. And, and again, just to give you a little understanding again of the structure here, 113 to 120 uh, every single line in there uh, would, would begin with the same letter, Samach, and while 121 through 128 will begin with the letter Ayan. Uh, in, the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's beautiful poetry, and in English, we're going to miss the poetry, but it's still incredibly nourishing for our souls, nevertheless. So, uh, as with the rest of Psalm 119, this psalm, I've already mentioned it right, is incredibly overarching theme is the Word of God. In fact, there's only five verses that don't mention the Word of God out of all those 176 of them. Two of them are in this passage that we look at today. Uh, but the psalmist refers to the scriptures by six different terms here. Just so you understand, they're mostly interchangeable. The law, uh, your law, your word, your commandments, your statutes, your testimonies, and your precepts. And if you've ever read all of Psalm 119 before, you know it's not just about knowing God's Word. It's not just about reading God's Word. It's about learning to delight in God's Word. It's, it's about learning to, <clears throat> to actually come to know it and obey it and, and love it in that way. And uh, so that's, that's what we're overarching idea. And the plan here for this, just because Psalm 19 is hard to actually outline in any, any way we're used to doing, right? The plan is simply we're going to read these two stanzas uh, and then we're going to unpack it a verse or two at a time and see what the Lord has to teach us today. So uh, let's begin Psalm 119, beginning in verse 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. 
You are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for the cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my, to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we want to love your word. We, we long to have our hearts filled with that, to, to believe that, to, to believe your word, to obey your word. We want to love it. This morning, we, we ask that you would enlighten our minds for this. As we feast on this portion of the Psalms, we ask that you would some, once again stir our affections to love your word, to seek it out in the morning, to to return to it in the noon, around noon, to, to come to it again at night, that, that we would make it a regular part of our life to be in your word. And we ask that, that this, your word, inform our minds, transform our hearts, and direct our steps. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I've said it a few times. You probably got it. You know it already, right? Uh, God's word is the main theme of Psalm 119. Uh, 19. And, and yet we begin to see there's a sub-theme going on in these two stanzas we're looking at. There's an emphasis on, on people who are a threat to the psalmist. He, he refers to these people by a number of things. He calls them uh, evildoers. He refers to them as wicked, as insolent oppressors. He calls them cunning. He, he refers to them as going astray. And here at the very start in verse 113, he calls them double-minded. Anyone remember where we've seen this term double-minded recently in the preaching? Please tell me yes. It hasn't been that long. Just shout it out. James. Yay. Okay. Thank you. I can continue on. Uh, yeah, James. One, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. There James is explaining that the double-minded person is, is someone who outwardly is professing faith in God, but in practice is, is living mostly in doubts, right? That not, not just a weak moment here and there, not struggling with doubt, but as a, a constant way of life, a habit of life, that's the way his life looks. He's back and forth, back and forth. You see, this Hebrew word, as we read uh, double-minded here, is from the same root word that shows up in 1 Kings 18.21. You don't need to turn all the way over there. Uh, and, and, and there it's just this phrase, right? Two different opinions is what's going on. Now, only they're in one person in this sense that we're looking at, right? Now, the context of that passage in 1 Kings is the prophet Elijah is, is speaking to God's people, the Jewish people, and they've been, they've been dabbling in false worship. Maybe we want to worship these false gods. Maybe we don't want to worship God anymore. And, and that's where they're at. And, and I'll read to you what it says. It says, he said, this is Elijah, he says, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In our, our passage today, these, what we're seeing is the people he's talking to, I think in our mind we want to make them someone outside the covenant people, right? But he's not talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians who are double-minded. These, these aren't people outside of the covenant family. The, these are fellow Israelites who say they follow the Lord, but really they don't at all. To, to put it into our, our modern context, these aren't atheists. These aren't secular humanists, right? These, these are church-going, cross-wearing, Jesus-professing people. But at the heart, they don't really love God. They don't really love God's Word. They, they, they love the world, and, and they've been pulled into that, right? Uh, James Montgomery Boyce defines these double-minded as this. He says, uh, people who know about God but are not fully determined to worship and serve Him only. They are those who want both God and the world. They want the benefits of true religion, but they, they, they also want to be able to embrace sin too. That they are even working against the psalmist and, and others who are seeking to obey the Lord. They, they show up in their lives and, and become quite a discouragement. In, in short, these are people whose hearts are divided between the Lord and the siren call of worldly pleasures. I think if we're honest, we can relate to that on some level at some point in our life. They're attempting here to have two masters. And as Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. Right? And when Jesus is talking there, he's not saying you shouldn't serve two masters. He's saying you can't serve two masters. It's absolutely impossible. So let me just ask and, and really consider it before you answer in your head even here, right? Uh, in regards to your commitment to God, in regards to your commitment to his word, uh, are you double-minded? Is that the, the struggle of your heart? You know, it's this question we're asking ourselves, am I loyal to the Lord? Am I, am I really? And I think if we're honest, I, I believe most of us would answer somewhat defeatedly something along the lines of, well, sometimes. I mean, I, I want to. I really want to. That's my, my hope. At this point, what we don't expect to see is the way the psalmist speaks of these double-minded. He says, he says, I hate the double-minded. Really? I mean, you, you hate the double-minded? I mean, doesn't the psalmist here know that you can only hate sin, the devil, and the Yankees? Those are the only acceptable things to hate. Many godly theologians, though, over the years have understood the psalmist in, in verse 113 here to, to also be saying that he hates, that he finds the same double-mindedness in himself, right? That there is this external part that he hates seeing in them, but he also hates it in himself, which makes sense when we look later in the psalm and, and instead of seeing the self-righteousness all the time, look how awesome I am, God, right? He, we, we see him asking God to sustain him, to, to keep him from sin. He, he acknowledges his, his own temptation towards that. And in a sense then, right, he, he means both I hate those who are double-minded and I hate the double-mindedness that seeps into my own heart. He, he feels it in himself, this tendency to be double-minded, to be lukewarm. And again, I, I think if we're honest, there's at least points in our life where we feel that too. If so, the, the proper response for us is seen in, in the second half of verse 113 where his hatred to the double-minded in himself and, you know, in them and himself, right, is, is contrasted quite strongly. He says, but I love your law. It's a statement of faith right there. I love your law. But, but it's also a reminder to himself, a, a resolution that he is going to cleave to God's word. He, he proclaims this, this same sentiment, right? One, 119, in verse 119, 
which is 119, 119. It gets weird. Uh, but then he says, right, I, I love your testimonies. And he says it again in verse 127. You got it out in front of you. He says, I love your commandments. We see this expression throughout this psalm, right, even beyond our passage today, his, his love for God just overflows out of his heart. We, we see it another eight or nine times in the rest of the psalm. Now, and I have you self-resolved to cleave to the Word of God. And I think this is where it gets us as Christians living in the age we do because he's, he's not just cleaving to the easier parts, the comforting parts, right? He's not just the good news or the gospel parts of grace and mercy, right? But, but he also is expressing this love for God's law, for the instruction uh, for life parts, right? The commandments and the rules, if you will. Right, if we were to bring this in our context, things like Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk. Do you love that? You tattooing that on you, right? Is it on your wall in your house? 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Do you love that? Right, or all the commandments to submit, right, to, to leaders, to, to one another, to your husband. Do you love that? Or as we read in Romans 12.18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. There's some days we don't want to love that. Do you love God's word when it forbids you from cheating, from lying, from stealing, from lusting, from greed, from pride, from self-righteousness? Do you really love God's word? Right? And, and do you aim at complete submission to the will of God revealed in his word? And, and again, I, I don't want to sell us short, but probably not, not to the degree we're seeing the psalmist here, but, but let us resolve to, to make that sort of love for God's word our own genuine love for God's word, our, our pursuit, right? Is that our most earnest prayer that, Lord, I want to love the word of God like the psalmist on 119 loves your, your word. In verse 114, as the psalmist says of God, you are my hiding place and my shield. And as he says that, we, we learn that God is a refuge for us. We're going to see that in great more detail next week in 144. But, you know, he's a refuge to us when others seek to bring harm to us. He, he's a refuge to us when dark thoughts assail us in the night. He's a refuge to us when, when temptations sidle up next to us in, in weak moments seeking to lead us astray. Hey, here we also learn that not only is God's word a shield of protection, but he hopes in God's word. And so do you. Well, you and I, we hope in God's word as well. We, we find real hope in God's word, for it is in God's word that we actually learn about sin, that we are sinners, right? But it's also where we learn about God's eternal plan of salvation. It's where we learn about Jesus upon the cross. It's where we learn about Christ raising from the dead on Easter morning. It's where we learn about our, our, our souls and the gospel goodness of forgiveness by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you lack hope in this life, dive deep into these 66 books that we call the Bible and you'll find the hope that you need. In fact, this is the only place you're going to find it. True, lasting hope. In verse 115, he's, he's ready to put space between himself and, and those that he has labeled as evildoers, evil those um, who have either done him harm or they have drawn him away from the Lord in some way. We don't know all the details that he's getting at here, right? But... Uh, when our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5.43 taught us, you know, love your enemies. We know that. It's a hard thing for us to carry sometimes. And it's good for you to know. He, he doesn't mean that we must approve of our enemies' evil acts. It doesn't mean that we must live in close, intimate relationship with them, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
You see, sometimes the wisest, most God-honoring thing that we can do is to put some relational distance between ourselves and those that draw us away from following the Lord more fully. Not those that might just annoy you, right, or are super holy or bring out your convictions, that kind of thing. Not everything, but, but someone who you, you find yourself being led away from the Lord when you're hanging out with them, right? That, that's what the psalmist is doing here. Look at it, right? He, he separates from evildoers, but why? What's the reason he gives? Have a look. He says, that I may keep the commandments of my God. That's his goal. If there is someone, even a, a fellow believer, who every time you hang out leads to, leads to sin, right? You gossip slander, sexually, whatever it might be, right? You've got to, well, first of all, take responsibility. You can't ever blame somebody else for your sin. You take a, you know, responsibility for your part in it. No one ever makes you sin. But if we're serious about keeping God's word, we, we need to resolve to, to keep it. And at least for a time, that might mean removing ourselves from relationships that, that keep leading us into disobedience. At least the closeness of it. Also of note in verse 115 here is the personal intimate way the psalmist refers not just to God here but but what's it say he says my God it's the only place this shows up in all 176 of these verses right my God is what he's getting at there is that personal aspect that all of us need to as we know the Lord through Christ right that we don't just call him God but he is indeed your God then verses 116 and 117, there is a prayer here. It is a prayer asking for God's covenant promises to prove true in his own life, that he won't be put to shame for trusting in God, that he's going to remain safe through all the trouble that he's facing, right? And, and also that he'll have regard for God's statutes, God's words. And in short, he's saying, God, help me to obey your word. Help me to do what I'm reading here in your word, what I know to be true in your word, and not just once, but continually, right? That is the Christian life for us. You don't read it once and be like, all right, done with that, I got that, right? It's an ongoing regard for God's word, which means we come back again and again to God's word, and we regard it, we want to understand it. How does it shape my life? What does it say about who I am, who God is, how I'm to live? See, it's, it's the prayer for the kind of discipleship that Eugene Peterson referred to as a long obedience in the same direction. Lord, help me to submit to your word today, yes, but also tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, right? There's that, the ongoing long view of, of discipleship. And, and this is a prayer because he knows, right, if, if we are to diligently read and intently study and clearly understand and, and then actually obey God's word, if that's going to actually happen in our life, it, it, it will only be so, done so by the, by the grace of God that the Lord help us to do that. And so if you're looking for this, right, what does this look like? Where do you begin? Or, you know, you begin just with a simple prayer. Lord, give me regard for your statutes continually. Right? If you hear that, people tell you sometimes to pray scripture, right? That's, that's one of the ways you, you do that there. You, you come there and you see, right, regard your statutes continually. You pray that, Lord, help me to regard your statutes continually. And this is the tricky part for us. That also means that you have a plan for when you're going to daily read and, and meditate on God's Word. Not just sometime, I should do that kind of thing. How am I going to do that? Ver right? So that's where we go there. Verses 118 and 19 show God's disregard towards those who reject His law. He discards them like dross. You know what dross is? Dross is uh, when metal work's being done and those little shavings come off of it. That's, that's called dross, I'm told. I've never done any metal working myself. Um, and this brings us to our last verse in the first stanza, uh, where he earnestly confesses uh, of God, my flesh trembles 
for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Over 20 years ago, David Wells said, uh, God seems to have very little bearing on the actual life of today's Christians. They do not disbelieve in him. They are Christians after all, but he is remote from their thinking. There's no fear of God. Do you get the sense that that's improved greatly over the last 20 years among Christians? Right? Have we, have we lost our fear in God? Are you, are you ever just... Do you find yourself ever just stupefying in awe of God? Just amazed at who He is? His power? Do you find yourself in any sense of the word even in fear of God? And I think there's been a big push against that even, particularly in evangelicalism, right? We, we, we tend to look down on fear as motivation for anything because it's often a bad motivation for some things, but, but it does have its proper place. There, there, there's a right way for you to fear electricity in the form of a lightning bolt in the sky. No one's impressed if you go out with your seven iron, wave it in this th- during a thunderstorm, right? That's not the proper fear for that sort of thing, as though lightning were, were some harmless light in the sky, Right? You, you know that you, you don't disregard an uncaged lion as if it were a tabby cat. You, you have proper, respectful fear in its presence. I was, uh, I remember, I had to look it up. I couldn't remember where it was. But it was about a year ago. There was a zoo worker. And you know those crisscross fences that a lot of things are made out of, baseball parks and stuff like that? He crams his hand through there, deciding he's going to, like, pet the, this lion. And no surprise to any of you here probably, the lion actually ate his fingers right off of his hand, right? He had this, no fear of it was his problem, and, and he probably should have. That's kind of what I mean here. But what we find in Scripture then is that it's right for us to fear God. Not because he's evil, not because he's cruel, not because he's out of control, right? But because he is holy. Because there's no one mightier than him. Because, again, right, he's holy, and you and I, we're not holy, in Luke 12, 5, Jesus tells his disciples not to fear those who might kill them, right? Don't have this fear of just man, of people, right? He, he then says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And the only person that can meet that category that he just did, right, is, you know, uh, that has that authority is the Lord God Almighty. You, you see, a, a proper fear of God removes the improper fear of man, the improper fear of, of death. The improper fear of just about everything else. Now, if you want to know who God really is, right, to develop this, this fear of God, and, right, study the scriptures, let, let God speak for himself, and as he reveals himself, your, your natural response will be to stand in, in breath-holding awe of God. That, that's what happens when we, when we really read it. I don't just mean cursely reading through it. I mean when we read scripture, we do it slowly, we meditate on it, we let it sink in, we pray for God to to, you know, bring this to, to be powerful in our lives and the Lord answers that prayer, that's when we get to that point of, of just standing in awe of God or sitting in awe of God. As our hearts, you know, learn to tremble before the glory of, of God because he's holy. And, and as that happens, one of the things we find is, is the corrupted values of the culture around us will show themselves to be as empty as they really are, even though they don't always seem that way to us. Later this week, I want you to return to to verse 120 here, right? Really the whole section, but particularly that one, and read it again. I want you to read it carefully. I want you to read it with a sense of repentance where it's needed. You know, use it as a basis for your own prayer to the Lord and and asking God for a good and godly and proper, awe-inspiring fear of the Lord. It would do wonders for our hearts in so many other areas of our life if, if we had a proper fear of the Lord. 
Um, let, let's move on. Uh, the, the 16th stanza, beginning in verse 121 here, where the Lord's essentially saying, or where the psalmist is essentially saying, Lord, I, I've obeyed your word, so don't leave me to my oppressors. Now, it, it sounds a little bit here like he's saying, look at my good deeds. Look what I've done. You now owe me something, God. As a response to this, it's not what's happening here. He's simply asking God to do what God has already promised to do in his word. And, and there's a whole lot of places where there's examples of this. Let me just give you one, Psalm 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So he's reminding the Lord of what he's already said. He's crying out to God for help here. Uh, so then verse 122 is the first of three instances in this stanza uh, where the psalmist refers to himself as God's servant. Uh, the other two come just almost after, verse 124 and 125. We, we rightly, in the church as Christians, we call ourselves Christians, we call ourselves believers, uh, children of God, we're the people of God. It, it is also right and, and honorable for us to call ourselves servants of God. Do you ever use that phrase? Could you even, could you say it out loud? I am a servant of the Lord. It's a good thing to, to practice. Do, doing so helps us consider how our time and life is best spent on this big blue planet, right? Namely, for the purposes of, of our God. And, and that looks like a lot of things, right? Yes, that, that looks like kindness to others in the name of the Lord. Yes, it looks like enjoying music and art and going out and just enjoying God's good creation, right, on a hike or whatever it might be, but, but also serving the Lord by, by helping those in need, by worshiping God, by sharing the gospel, by doing the things that he's called us to do, by being the people in the way that we're called to be his people. In verse 123, he is longing for God to save him. Uh, verse 124, he prays, really saying, right, deal with me according to your steadfast love. And that is really technical there, the steadfast love. It's not just love, but steadfast love. That's, that's God's faithful covenant love. Uh, it, it is signified in the, in the Hebrew with this Hebrew word hesed, if you've heard that before, um, is what he's getting at. And, and then also in 124, he asked God to teach him his statutes. Again, that's another word for God's word. And uh, 125, he asked God for understanding, to know God's testimonies. Again, right, it's, God, I want to know what's in this book. I want it to change me. I want it to teach me. I want it to shape my life in, in all these ways. And, and it's not just about this, this intellectual understanding of God's word. It is that. That's part of it if you're ever really going to understand God's word, but he's asking for also for discernment to know how to apply God's word to particular, particular areas of our lives. And as you read the scriptures, look for how to actually do what it teaches. In the 126th verse here, we see he says, It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. And that sounds a little bit like he's elevating himself above God. God, that your law's been broken, you're doing nothing, go, go get to work. Why are you just sitting there? It's kind of the way it sounds to, to us, right? It's not what's happening here. He's, he's confessing, Lord, the, the people are disobeying your law, and, and I don't know what else to do. Only you can fix this now. Only you can fix this. You see, sometimes in our, our life, in a, we try to be the Holy Spirit for people that we love. And we do that by endlessly trying to persuade them to make good decisions. Right? Do this. This is the godly thing. Don't do that. And and, and it's just a common thing. You do it, you know, again, with people we love, we tend to do it. Now, if you ever tried this, you know by now it doesn't work. You are very limited. You can be a great encouragement to people, but you cannot be the Holy Spirit for anyone. 
Only the Holy Spirit can really change your man or woman at the heart level. And when you realize that, you will pray like the psalmist here. God, I need you to act. It's time for you to act, right? They disregard your word. They don't care. Only you can change them. I've done everything I can to encourage. It's, it's time for you to act, though. That's the only hope there is here. In verse 127, then, he beautifully says, I love your commandments above gold, fine gold. Now you've got to understand the context here. Gold is the most valuable thing he can really compare it to. Right? It's like if, I, if I were offered a bunch of gold and I was offered to have your word still, I would take your word. Uh, today you might put that in other terms, right? Uh, I love your word more than ownership of the Dallas Cowboys, right? And I picked them just because they're worth $5.7 billion, which is ridiculous, but that's what they're worth. Or, right, I, I love you more than all the shares of Apple stock. Whatever, I don't even know what the most valuable thing in the world is right now, but something like that, right? His point is, God's word is more valuable than anything that you can think of. Anything. And, and we don't think of it that way because it's just... Words on paper, right? You can get one for, well, free. Just steal the Gideons next time you're in a hotel, right? So, so we don't think of it as having all this valuable um, aspect to it. And, and his point here, though, is, again, right, it's more valuable than anything you can think of. I mean, and Christian, it's yours. So treasure this book. Read it. Meditate it on it. Memorize it. Regard it highly. Regard it continually. And... and and this brings us to our last verse, 128. The, the psalmist says here, Therefore I consider all your precepts, another word for word, right, to be right. I hate every false way. I consider all your precepts to be right first, right? He doesn't only believe that God's word, um, in God's word when it aligns nicely with whatever his current cultural values are. Right? I consider your word to be right. That's what he's saying, right? He recognizes God's word as authoritative, authoritative in and of itself. And you and I should too, regardless of what popular current ethical values or otherwise are, right? But, but do you? I mean, how do you handle that? How do you go about, you know, determining ethics in your own understanding of the world? Do you consider God's word to be right like the psalmist here? Even when it makes you awkward? Even when it makes you stand out? Even when you might be labeled in ways you don't want to be labeled in this world? Uh, and, and finally, he says here, I hate every false way. That word way here, right, is literally in the Hebrew path, right? I, I hate every false path. We find this imagery of, of paths and walking throughout the scriptures. Uh, speaking to Moses, God says in Leviticus 18.4, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. Right? Actually do them. That's what he's talking about. Jesus in, in John 8.12 8, says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, right? There's this walking path imagery there. Paul in Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And, and that's just three. That's just the, the tip of the iceberg. If you want to do a fascinating word study in the scriptures, uh, go in the word walk and the word path. You'll find things everywhere. It's, it's intriguing to see that imagery throughout the scripture. Um, and in general, the idea here, right, is... is, is we can walk the true and the good path of God according to his word. That's, that's one path you can walk. Or, or you can walk a false path uh, of disregard, of disobedience, of, of simply not paying attention to God's word, not, not 
holding it up as something to actually be obeyed, right? That's another path. Now, I won't use names, but one of you recently shared about going on a hike on the Kanza Prairie. Uh, if you're not familiar, it is this path that creates this beautiful loop uh, <clears throat> around the Kanza Prairie. If you haven't done it, do it, but take a map or something with you. Um, and, and what happened on this path, though, right, uh, it should take you all the way around and right back to your car, and you're fine. However, on this excursion, they somehow followed a false path at some point, right? Off the raft, onto another one, it led them far away from the true path, uh, it led them out to a place where they were desperately in need uh, of some water. And in God's mercy, someone comes driving along, right, because the Lord is good, uh, in a car and drove them back to where they need to go. Now, <clears throat> This is the idea of a false path. I think sometimes when we hear it in, in this imagery in Scripture, we think, oh, they're both really fun paths. Uh, you know, one of them's God's and maybe a little boring, and the other one's like exciting things in the world, and let's take that path. It's going to have great views. Um, this kind of thing that I just told you, right, about the path and the content, this is why we should hate false paths. It didn't take you on a, a better, more beautiful, wonderful thing. It's a false path. It's not the path you're meant to go down. It's not a safe path. It's not a, a, a good, encouraging path. It leads us, you know, to come back into this imagery, right? It leads us away from the Lord. It leads us away from God's protections. It leads us into sin that's not just some great thing, but has all these negative consequences uh, on our life. And, and the biggest of those negative consequences is, is the distance, the, the wedge it drives between us and the Lord. It drives us away from grace, away from the joy of, of walking in the true paths of the Lord. And so we really should hate false paths. Right? If you ask this family who did this, I bet they hate that false path. Like, that's the, no, that's not the path. Take the other one. Uh, and, and listen, right? Every path, every philosophy, every ethical value that is not the path of God laid out in his holy word is a false path. So are you willing to hate every false path? To, to quote Boyce again, he says, if, if not, if you're not willing to hate every false path, well, you, you will never learn to love God truly. And you will certainly never walk in the way that brings true blessing. You see, in contrast to hating these false paths, I, um, I, I want to end this morning with kind of a, a weird move here. I, I just want to read the first three verses of Psalm 1. And, and I want to do so because this ends with hating false paths. And in the very beginning of the Psalms, in Psalm 1, it really gives us this picture of the man or the woman who walks with the Lord, the man or the woman who, who walks the right path of, of God and his word. And, and so I'm just going to read that and then we'll close in prayer. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Let's pray. O Lord divine, we submit to your authority. Holy Spirit, keep our feet from straying down false paths into sin. But let your commandments be our shield, our, our refuge. Please enlighten our eyes to discern what is right so that we may Live in your truth day and night. May your word hidden our hearts forever shine. Lord, my prayer for myself, my prayer for your people sitting here among us, even those that are traveling that are among us, Lord, I ask that you would stir our love for your word. We want that. We desire that. We know we need that. And would you stir among us just a love for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.